I want to begin with the true story of Katherine Goble Johnson, a black woman who in the 1960s worked at NASA when they were based in Langley, Virginia. And this is her story from the movie Hidden Figures. The Mercury Atlas space vehicle, which will put John Glenn, the first American, into Earth's orbit, has already undergone five unmanned flight tests. NASA has confirmed that the IBM 790 data processing system has been utilized to confirm all of the mission's launch and recovery system calculations. The modifications and equipment installations are progressing on schedule. Right here. You wanted to see me, sir? Have a seat. Is there something wrong, Mr. Harrison? No, there's nothing wrong. In fact, our IBM is churning out numbers in fractions of the time any human can, present company included. Let's have you report back to the West School for now. We'll see if we can find another assignment. Thank you, sir. IBM's been spot on up to this point, John, but we'll run it again and see what it comes up with. Look, I'm going to be honest with you, Al. When I fly, I fly the machine. And right now, it seems like this machine's flying me. We're on the same page, John. Our guys are on it. Let's get the girl to check the numbers. The girl? Yes, sir. You mean Catherine? Yes, sir. The smart one. I mean, she says they're good. I'm ready to go. All right, we'll get into it. Roger. Sam, go find Catherine Goble. She needs to verify Glenn's go, no go, or we're staying on the ground. Yes, sir. Looking for Catherine Goble. It's Catherine Johnson now. They need you to verify these coordinates. All right, give us some space so to work. As we await Colonel John Glenn's launch, a truly historic day for America. The country has waited for several months through many failed unmanned Atlas rocket tests and 10 scheduled manned attempts, which were canceled for various mechanical or system complications. Even when all the final tests and checks are being conducted, John Glenn is ready to board the French ship set. Anything from Langley? Not yet. We are being told that the mission control at NASA is conducting a final check of the launch and recovery coordinates, including the go-no-go calculations, so crucial to a safe and successful launch and recovery. Captain. Could indicate a hesitancy on NASA's behalf, but let us say without reservation that the safety of Colonel John Glenn is paramount to the mission and to the nation itself. No, sir, we're still a go. Yes, sir. What the devil are you doing? Are you taking a break? Yes. Say yes. Give it time. Yes. Catherine. Sir, we've got Pat 14 on the box. All right, let me in. This is Langley. We have the coordinates confirmed. Stand by, Langley. The launch window is a go. The landing coordinates match. Well, that is very good news, Al. It's a little hard to trust something. You can't look in the eyes. That's right, Colonel. Catherine did manage to calculate a few decimal points further than that hunk of metal. 
Well, I will take every digit you got. Be sure to thank her for me. Gentlemen, let's launch this rocket. Good luck, friendship seven. Godspeed, Langley. Here at Cape Canaveral, the countdown has resumed as Colonel John Glenn is now aboard the Friendship 7, high above the Atlas rocket on pad 14. Yes, Katherine Johnson was a brilliant mathematician. Only problem was that she was black and she was a woman. It was the 1960s. And although she lost her job as a person who computed numbers at NASA, replaced by the very first IBM computers, occupying a whole room at NASA, as you saw in that movie, America's first astronaut, John Glenn, wouldn't go up for America's first space flight until Katherine Goble Johnson, at his request, cleared up a computer discrepancy by her own hand calculations. And that is a true story. She went from being a near zero to a hero at NASA in the last minutes before America's very first manned space flight, even though things there at that time, unknown to all of us, were quite a mess. And that's something we're all involved in today, too, isn't it? At times, all of us may feel like a zero, who at times would like to be a hero, but most of us feel life's way too messy for us to get there. It's as unlikely for us as it was for Katherine Johnson, a black woman in the 60s getting there. And then, too, none of us are genius mathematicians either. But we kind of like the sound of that word hero, don't we? It's, it's attractive. It's compelling. Heroes make us smile when we think about them. It's not just kids who love a hero. Adults love heroes, too, because it's adults who go to comic book conventions like Comic-Con, it's one of the biggest conventions of any type in all the world, held annually in 41 locations around the globe. It's the adults who go dressed up as superheroes. But I have to tell you what, it's hard to get that guy dressed up like Wonder Woman with a mustache on the screen and that big stomach out of my mind. But a good superhero and good superhero story never really gets old, which is why they keep coming back around again and again and again. But we're not going to talk about people with special powers today or people who dress up like people with special powers. Now, today we're going to talk about everyday heroes because whether we admit it or not, all of us would like to live a heroic life. None of us want to waste our lives. We want our lives to matter. But as you know, at the foundation of all superheroes, when you study them, is that they all started out with lives that were filled with pain and that were kind of a mess. Think about it. You got Batman, whose parents were killed in front of him. Spider-Man was raised by an ant after his parents were killed. Superman was adopted after his planet was destroyed. And then there's Iron Man, who had a dad you could never please. Hulk, he definitely had anger issues. And to Luke Skywalker, well, he had another one of those fathers you couldn't please. And finally, Napoleon Dynamite, he was lactose intolerant. So, behind every superhero's costume and story was some pain and some mess. In spite of that, we'd still like to have a heroic life. We'd love to have some of the super and some of the hero part, but we don't really want any of the pain and the mess part. That's because we know what pain feels like. And so we push it away. And that's understandable because no one likes pain. But when I say the word mess, what do you think of? 
you're a teen, you probably think, ah, my room. Adults may think of things like challenges and life and family. And for me, in recent weeks, it was worrying about my surfing trip to Costa Rica that I just returned from. Is the airline actually going to allow me to take my 11-foot-long, 3-foot-wide board on the plane? And how should I pack the board bag to keep it from getting damaged? And what if they say that my board's too big to go? How would I ever be able to rent one like that down there? And where would I go to find one like that down there? And what was I going to do? And on and on and on. And so what am I saying? I'm saying that I can be a mess. The condition of my outer world is often messy. But I'm going to be honest with you. My inner world, where my faith and my soul collide, are actually pretty messy too. At least messier than I want them to be. Why? Well, it's probably because I could be more compassionate than I am. I could be less judgmental than I am towards those different from me. I could be more generous than I am. And even though I know better theologically, as you just heard, I still live with doubts and with fears. My inner world is often reflected in how I think. And I think messy thoughts that can so easily distract me, like sometimes if I'm traveling down this two-lane highway, this big truck's coming in the opposite direction, I think, what if he comes over the line at the last minute? What would I do? How would I handle that if, if I was going into a big ditch like I just passed back there? Or if he came over and there was a flat shoulder here, could I miss that tree? And would it damage my SUV? Or would it total it? If it total it, what kind of SUV would I get to replace? And I go, wait a minute, what am I thinking? Where did that come from? Now, does anybody else ever have thoughts like that? And would any of you be brave enough or courageous enough to say that when it comes to your inner life, where your faith and where your soul collide, how many of you would say, well, I could be pretty messy there too? Anyone? I think many of us can relate to that because we've all made spiritual commitments that we haven't kept. Because we've all said, sitting right here at church, I'm never going to do blank again, and you fill in the blank. And then two, three, four weeks later, you go, oh, no, I did it again. Or maybe you walk out of here after a message on forgiveness, and you become more forgiving until that one person that gets underneath your skin does something, pushes you over the edge again, and you're right back to where you started. And here's what happens. When you and I, we don't keep our spiritual commitments, here's what we do. We think, I'm not a very good Christian. How many of you ever thought that before? I'm not a very good Christian. And that's one of the reasons, actually, that I love the Bible, because of the Apostle Paul. He was a spiritual superhero who actually goes public with the clouds of his messiness and his pain. If you're not familiar with Paul, he's arguably the most passionate follower of Jesus in the New Testament. And yet listen to his words in Romans 7th chapter in the New Living Translation where he says, I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. Sound familiar? Well, he's perfectly describing the battle of inconsistency that lives within all of us. And this concept is not new to our spiritual superheroes either, because the Bible is filled with messy heroes. And the flaws of these spiritual heroes are not edited out. Consider those close to Jesus' disciples. 
Some of them were really pretty messy dudes. True, they're all spiritual heroes in their own right, but at times in reading about them, they come off as spiritually messy misfits. Think about it. These guys spent three years with Jesus. They traveled everywhere with him. They heard every sermon, every teaching, every conversation. They saw every miracle. And after all that, though, we read this about them in just one chapter of the Bible, Matthew 26, where in verse 15, Judas asked those opposing Jesus, how much will you pay me to portray Jesus to you? And in verse 31, on the way to the garden, Jesus told his disciples, tonight, all of you are going to betray me and desert me. And Paul responds to that saying, hey, even if everybody else does, I'm not going to desert you. But you see later in verse 70, after Jesus is arrested, someone says to Peter, I knew you were with Jesus. And he says, I don't know what you're talking about. And then again, when questioned about his association with Jesus in verses 72, and then again in 74, Peter says, I don't know the man. I don't know the man. And back earlier in this same chapter before Jesus arrested, he asked his closest friends, Peter, James, and John, just keep watch here with me, meaning, would you stay here and pray with me? And so what do they do? Well, in verses 40 and 43, they fall asleep, not once, but twice. So why tell you all this? Because messiness, if you're feeling it, if you're experiencing it in your life, it means that you and I have something in common with those that were closest to Jesus. It means that you and I are not alone in our messiness. And here's what this leads to. You'll never be an everyday hero until you come to grips with your everyday messiness. And later we see Paul get this very specifically in 2 Corinthians about something that we call a thorn in the flesh. And we don't know what it is. Paul had some kind of pain. He had some kind of worry, some kind of wound. We don't know if it was emotional or it was physical. But he begs God to take it away. And this we see in 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10 in the New Living Translation. Paul says three different times, I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weakness. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Finally, when you get your arms around your own messiness is when you actually can feel the arms of Jesus around you. But we are so prone to getting this backwards, aren't we? We may think when it's messy, Jesus pushes us away. But no. When you really understand and when you really come to grips with your own true nature, with all its warts, all its bumps, and all its messiness, that's when you feel the embrace of God the most. But please don't misunderstand what we're saying here. We're not suggesting that God condones our sins, our faults, and our unbiblical living. We're not saying that at all. God doesn't condone our messiness but God redeems it. And over time, what Jesus does is transforms our messiness into holiness. So instead of allowing your messiness to defeat you or to numb you or to paralyze you into thinking that I'm not a very good Christian, realize that your messiness is actually the fertilizer for your spiritual growth. Mess is actually the fertilizer for authentic heart change. The spiritual growth and heart change, they're both a progressive process. They don't just happen instantly in the blink of an eye. They take place over time as you progress in your growth and in your authentic heart change. And the opposite of progression is regression. And guess which is the source of our messiness? It's regression. 
which sometimes causes us to take a step back. But it's our messiness and the motivation of wanting to spring forward from that one step back that causes us to take two steps forward in our heart change and in our spiritual growth. And that's how our mess is actually fertilizer for spiritual growth and authentic heart change. Now, how many of us have ever had a Polaroid camera like the one that's pictured there on the screen? And the way you operate a Polaroid camera is you point, you take a picture, a little card comes out, looks like this. And it has an undeveloped image on it. What you do is you just watch it, and that image slowly appears right before your eyes. And that is like the process of heart change and spiritual growth. It doesn't develop all at once. So this is me when I accepted Christ as a child with God holding me and watching me develop. And then through that process, God keeps holding me and watches me develop a little bit more as a youth, which I'll add, it's crazy how much that Keaton and I look alike there, isn't that? I mean, I was like, oh, when I saw that, okay, back on track. So this is God watching me develop some more as a youth. And then even many years later, as a young adult, God goes, nope, still not there, missing it. Got a long way to go before he's more like Jesus than more like Bill. So God keeps holding me, saying more development's needed. And sometimes I take a scary step backwards, but God knows that. And uh, he says that one day I am going to look more like Jesus than Bill's own nature. And so I'm getting closer all the time until here and there, more and more and more, I do resemble Jesus. And that's how spiritual growth, that's how authentic heart change takes place. But you have to think, God would tire holding on to Bill, looking at me slowly develop. Here's the thing. God doesn't tire. That is his thing, changing you and me from the inside out. In fact, he loves it. He loves it so much he doesn't want any of us staying the same. In fact, he says, I want to change you into something beautiful, something more like Christ. And you see, that's God's dream for an everyday hero. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, in the New Living Translation, tells us this in saying, And the Lord who is spirit makes us. Now notice makes us is in the present tense. It's not something way out in the future. It's the present tense. And the Lord who is spirit makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. So here's the good news. You and I don't have to wait till we get all cleaned up before we can experience God's glorious love. But we sometimes think of that, don't we? We think that's the way it is. We think, yeah, I've got to get my act together, and I've got to stop the bleeding in my life, and then I can get closer to God, and then God can really guide me and bless me. It's kind of like at the Underwood household, we've thought about having someone come and do some really deep cleaning periodically. In fact, I recently heard about a family that does that two or three times a year. And in sharing the experience, the head of the household said, when I see that on the calendar, I really, really dread it. Because when we have a house cleaner coming, the morning before the house cleaner gets here, we all clean the house. We clean the house in preparation for the house cleaner coming that we're paying to clean the house. But you see, with Jesus, we don't have to do that. We don't have to clean up first. The cleaning process begins when you put your faith in Jesus and you start following Jesus, which begins a procession in your spiritual growth and in your authentic heart change. And here's why we need to get this. Because we can become spiritually paralyzed by our own spiritual messiness, spiritually defeated in our messiness. And there are three potential paths that you can take in your spiritual life. First two are negative, but here's the third path. 
there is a third path that everyone can take that God wants for us to take to be spiritual heroes as well. The first two are negative. Let me share with you the first one. The first path is the path of spiritual apathy. What does apathy mean? Well, who cares? That's exactly it. Apathy causes withdrawal. So you withdraw and you give up your faith and you give up on the church, you give up being part of a caring community. But some people don't give up completely. What they do is they just settle. They settle in their faith to a place that they lack passion. And it becomes no longer personal. It becomes no longer powerful. So when you become spiritually apathetic, you just don't care much. And although I don't have spiritual apathy, I do admit to having card and board game apathy. In other words, I don't care a thing about playing card games or board games. It's just a shame because my wife Patty loves playing card games and board games. It would be such a cool thing if we could play card games and board games together. But I have card and board game apathy. It's true. I admit it. But here's the thing. My wife Patty, you know what she has? She has surfing apathy. In other words, she doesn't care a thing about surfing doesn't care about going surfing, having long detailed talks about surfing, watching surfing movies. It's such a shame because I love surfing. And it would be such a good thing if we could go surfing together. But in spite of all that, I really like to ask Patty about all the Scrabble games she plays with her friend Jan. And I do like to ask her what happened on her weekly outing for bingo. And she likes asking me how the waves were when I get back from the beach. Because even though I have a card and board game apathy and she has surfing apathy, doesn't mean that we still don't relate very, very well to each other. But when you have spiritual apathy, you don't really relate that well to God. Because you lose your basis of relating and the reason for relating. And that affects every area of your life. If I have spiritual apathy, it's going to affect your character. If you have spiritual apathy, it's going to affect your choices, your relationships, your peace, your discernment, your wisdom, your ability to know and be known by a caring community. If you have spiritual apathy, it's going to affect all the domains of your life. And there's just too much at stake to go down that path of spiritual apathy. And that's not the path that God wants any of us to take. And here's the second potential spiritual path we might find ourselves on, and it's this. We call this this path of spiritual acting. This is where you pretend and perform. And when you're a spiritual performer, you know you're messy. But here's the thing. You don't want anybody else to know. So you put on this spiritual mask and pretend. The problem with this is that it leads to superficial relationships. Because when you pretend, you're only known by the fictional character that you've created for yourself. And that fictional character doesn't really have the ability to love and to be loved. And in talking about pretenders, they always pose with this smile. You know the one? It's a little too big and it's a little too long. And everything's always great. And everything's always glorious with them. Even if they've been out of work for a year, they just say, oh, it's just a little setback. If their beloved dog gets hit and killed by a car, they say, oh, God, just need a puppy angel like that in heaven. But none of that's true because it's just an act. And when you act, you lack authentic relationships. When you pretend, people don't really get close to you. That's where the problem is. When you get close to people, transformation happens there. Change happens there, which is awesome. But there's also a sad side to pretenders because they have something that they don't see. Pretenders actually discourage other Christians because others get fooled by their mask. They look at you and they think, hey, you got it all together. And so others can be defeated by that. And so when you attempt to be Mr. and Mrs. Christian that has it all together, you actually 
discourage other people. And when you look at Jesus, uh, he tended to hang out with people who didn't have it all together. In fact, Jesus seemed to be attracted to those types of people. And yet Jesus was nauseated by spiritual performers. It's funny that you don't see Jesus becoming super, super angry with those that were thieves or prostitutes or liars. But look at what Jesus says about spiritual performers in Matthew 23, 2 and 3 in the message. The religion scholars and Pharisees are competent teachers in God's law. Remember, this is Jesus talking. You won't go wrong following their teachings on Moses. But be careful about following them. They talk a good line, but they don't live it. They don't take into their lives or into their hearts and live it out in their behavior. It's all spit and polish veneer. So if you find yourself being a spiritual actor or spiritual performer, here's what Jesus would say to you. Stop hiding. Stop the game of hide and seek that you're playing in your life and with your life. It's time for the game to end. And if your spiritual relationships with others never ever get past the point of just sharing your prayer requests with them, go deeper and share something messy about yourself. And when you do, you will find you're not alone in your messiness because in relationships that are honest and vulnerable, that's where real freedom and confidence and joy are born. And that's the way that God created you to live, which is the third spiritual path God wants us to take to move from feeling like a spiritual zero to becoming an everyday hero, a person who comes to grips with their own messiness. And this is called the path of spiritual adventure. This is someone who says, even in the midst of their mess, I'm not going to get dissuaded or discouraged or distracted from my following Jesus. And following Jesus, let me tell you, it's not a soft stroll in a rose garden. Following Jesus is more like a stumble through a construction zone. It's filled with dirt and bumps and mess and piles of stuff and danger. And a construction zone, man, that's a perfect metaphor because spiritual growth and authentic heart change means you're under construction. Because when you first put your faith in what Jesus did on the cross for you, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit celebrates that big time. And then the Holy Spirit immediately grabs a set of blueprints with your name on it, dives into your life for the construction to begin. And when you're under construction, let me tell you, there are going to be messes and mess-ups. You're going to do dumb things. You might even do things not natural to you. You will fall and fail. And when you do, God says, oh, pick yourself up, shake yourself off, and keep going. Of course, some of us really don't like those words much, do we? Shake it off. Coaches are famous in using that line, aren't they? In football, basketball, any sport, you get hurt. And that's the first thing they say if you move any at all. Shake it off. And what they mean is to focus on going forward and not on what hurts. It's amazing how often that actually works. Now in just a few minutes, you actually do feel better. Of course, there are some injuries like broken bones, torn ligaments, and dislocations that simply shaking it off isn't possible and more expert attention is needed. But when you follow Jesus, even when you've got doubt and fear and you're lonely and you've got questions and you feel inadequate, you follow him because this is the thing about Jesus. Jesus is less concerned about perfection and he's so much more concerned about your desire. Jesus is less concerned about you being competent when you think, I've got to figure this out. Do I read the Bible and then pray or do I pray and read the Bible and how much should I give and, and when should I give and how does God want me to do this and if I do it that way, is that a mistake? Jesus is so much less concerned about your competence and getting all these spiritual gymnastics right and so much more concerned about your desire. You study Jesus, you'll see he responded to people with desire. 
The woman who desired to fight her way through the crowd just to touch his clothes, she was healed instantly because of her desire from a very long, drawn-out, debilitating ailment. And the friends who were so desirous to get a friend before Jesus that they took a roof apart so they could lower their friends into Jesus so he could heal them. That's desire. And Jesus responds to desire because desire is big. Now my surf buddy Jamie, if he asked me if I wanted to go on a surf trip to Tofino, where the waves are very consistently like that, I would say, absolutely not. No way. Why? Because Tofino's in Canada. Where the temperatures in the air, the water are absurdly, are you out of your mind, cold. And so if Jamie, though, suggests that we take a surf trip to Costa Rica, well, my desire motivated me to find out everything I could about Costa Rica, like where the good spots are, how close are the airports to those spots, which airlines fly there, which airlines might take my board, what hotels were on surf breaks, how is the food, the currency, the transportation, on and on and on. Why? Because my desire to go surfing in a warm place is very high, and my desire to go surfing in a cold place is very low. You see, desire changes everything. It's truly amazing what desire can do. So when God looks into your messy heart, he looks into your incompetence, he wants to see a deep desire for him, a deep longing for him. Indeed, one of the greatest themes in the Bible is God redeeming people's messiness and crafting out of that messiness heroic lives. So whatever your personal mess is today, you just got to know. If God began a good work in you, he's going to promise uh, and keep it just like he said he would. And that's the promise we see in Philippians 1, 6 in the New Living Translation, where we are told, and I am certain God who began a good work within you will. And the question is, will what? He will continue his work. That is, the work is the process of you growing spiritually and having authentic heart change because you're not done yet. You're not finished. And so God will continue that work in you until it is finally finished on the day that Christ Jesus returns. So my job is to be part of that spiritual adventure where I follow Jesus. And as I follow him, God's job is to change me from the inside out. Stephen Curtis Chapman, many years ago, wrote a song about this very spiritual adventure. He called it the great adventure. Listen now to its words and let God take you along. I started out this morning in the usual way Chasing thoughts inside my head Of all I had to do today Another time around the circle Try to make it better than the last I opened up the Bible And I read about you and me Said we'd all been prisoners And God's grace had set us all free Somewhere between the pages It hit me like a lightning bolt I saw a big frontier in front of me And I heard somebody say Let's go, settle up your 
It's truly one of my favorite all-time songs because every day, every day is a great spiritual adventure right out there before you. With God, not afraid of your messiness that you're going to encounter on your daily adventure. Because messiness is the very thing that got Jesus in trouble. Jesus had this preposterous idea that common, broken, screwed up, messy people could become whole again and holy. And he has the same idea for you and me and all of our messiness. So you want to be an everyday hero? Then keep on following him because every day you're going to wake up and there's going to be this Jesus-sized adventure waiting just for you in which somewhere someone's going to need a hero. And that hero, as God has laid it out, could very well be you. Will you pray with me? Great God, we just thank you so much for your love for us that reaches down into our mess. And Father, you just end up with our heart's desire blessing us. So help us to have the desire for you, Father, to go beyond all the stuff here that drags us down. Help us to open our eyes and our hearts and our spirits to the adventure, the spiritual adventure you lay out for us each day. So may we follow Jesus, our Savior. And in that, Father, we know that you're going to guide us to places that you want us to be, that we might, Dean, Father, go through transformation of heart and spirit. So thank you for the opportunity and help us to saddle up so that we are ready for that trail, that path every day, Father. And so thank you for that. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.